If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, picking right up where we left off. We ended at verse 20, last Lord's Day evening, and we'll study verses 21 through the end of the chapter. But just to reorient our minds to the immediate context, we'll begin reading at verse 18. Marriage is the great theme of the passage before us tonight, and surely the Lord God has a sense of humor. I was reading an article recently that says the three greatest strains on any given marriage are finances, when there's a big financial loss and there's money troubles in the family, or when the spouse is diagnosed with a long-term chronic or terminal illness, or thirdly, and this was at the top of the list, moving. Moving is the greatest strain listed according to the study on marriage. And here I am, and Sarah's here, and she's still smiling, and she's still willing to be seen in public with me as I come to preach on the theme of marriage tonight, so apparently there's still some credibility left to my name in that regard by the grace of God. So we're glad to be here. Thank you, all of you. Seriously, friends, thank you for all of your prayers for this week, and many of you who helped a lending hand in a variety of ways. It made the whole transition, the whole process so much easier, so much smoother. So thank you for your love to us in that regard. But let's look now to God's Word. We'll begin reading in verse 18, and we will read through the end of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 18. This is God's holy word. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inspired and inerrant word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? O Holy Spirit, grant us insight, we pray, and understanding and illumination again. Wield and work your word into the very fiber of our souls to this end tonight, we pray, so that we, your church, might be your spotless, unblemished, and holy bride. Amen. Well, what a timely passage. It is easy And appropriate, I think, for our minds to jump to our modern context when we read a passage like this, to think about all the ways that marriage is under assault. With most Americans, according to all the major surveys, holding a positive view of LGBTQ marriage, 
and other arrangements, polyamory and polygamy and even in some cases self-marriages, whatever that is, what is today's absurd thought experiment in some niche publication or obscure corner of the internet seems to become tomorrow's mainstream idea and then next week's codified law and then next month's long entrenched ideal that we've always held and how dare you oppose it, you narrow-minded bigot. On the other hand, it's not as if the Ephesians weren't faced with deviancies in the first century Greco-Roman world. They very much were. And this passage is wonderful because it is an evergreen passage. It's entirely relevant, certainly to our modern-day context, but it would also be entirely relevant even if we had none of our current cultural challenges at all. I remember back when we lived in Mississippi, our pastor at the time was preaching on Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. You know it. That verse says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And one gentleman said to him at the door after the service, Pastor, do we really need to hear this? It's the culture that doesn't value marriage, not like us in the church. Oh, really, said our pastor. Friend, didn't I hear you recently refer to your wife, not in an ironic or humorous way, just last week, as the old ball and chain? Seems to me that we've got some work to do in this church to honor marriage and not just endure it. Marriage matters. It teaches us something about ourselves and it teaches us something about the church. As others have pointed out, it's not as if the Lord God had invented marriage and then later down the road thought, ah, a handy analogy to describe the relationship between my son Jesus and his people. No, actually, it's entirely the reverse. In eternity past, as God ordained a bride for his son, he ordained the human marriage, the human relationship, so that its purpose from the outset was always and ever to point to Christ's marriage, his mystical union with his people. The, the lesser points to the greater. That's always how it works. Earthly marriage, yours and mine, serves to direct our gaze to the greater, the cosmic union between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. Sounds awful nice. Meanwhile, we've got folks, even in our own congregation, whose marriages are a source of absolute heartache. We've got folks who have been abandoned by their spouses, children grievously affected, how they need to know more about the great bridegroom who will never forsake them, who will never disappoint, and who is ever faithful and true. We need this passage, brothers and sisters. Marriage can be hard, and it is fraught with our own wretched sin in so many cases. And yet at the same time, marriage is an immense blessing. And according to Holy Scripture in Ephesians and Hebrews and Proverbs and elsewhere, a happy marriage is a blessing, and it is something worth fighting for not least of which because of how it points to Christ. And so here we are, in an age that derides marriage's value and wantonly distorts its meaning. And here God in his kindness has given us this section of his holy word. And he's given us resources so that we might fight to promote the honor of marriage and strive to build and perhaps even recapture, by the grace of God, godly Christ-centered marriages in our midst. And so... To our friends tonight who are single, young people, not yet married, those perhaps who may never be married, please don't tune out and assume that this passage has nothing for you. This passage is about the church, and if you are a Christian, then you are part of the church. This passage has everything to do with you. Pay attention as we study through it. Pay attention to how the scripture says the Lord God meets us in our need when it comes to marriages, because you'll see that that pattern is not unique to just marriage. 
It's very much the way he meets us in our deficiencies for everything. So whether you're single, whether you're married tonight, or whether you're not sure what in the world you're going to be, this is God's word and he is speaking to you in it. So let's look at the passage, shall we? One commentator that I read outlined it like this. The power, the pattern, and the practice of a healthy marriage. There's a nice little P alliteration there. That man must have been a Presbyterian to love alliteration so much. But I like that outline. I thought we'd use it for ourselves tonight. The power, the pattern, and the practice of a healthy marriage. So first, let's think about the power, the gospel power for a healthy marriage. We began reading in verse 18 there in chapter 5 because Paul says, what Paul says there has bearing on this section that's more specifically about marriages. There, Paul says, to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, the, that's the, the nature of the Greek grammar and the syntax that's going on there. Paul is essentially saying, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is one of constant dependence on the Spirit of Christ. And following that command that he gives there in verse 18 is a series of further instructions telling the Ephesians how they are to keep on being filled with the Spirit. It's a series of participials, at least how it's translated in the ESV, which I'm using tonight. Participials, those exhortations ending in I-N-G, those ing-ending verbals. Verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. How? By addressing, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By addressing the word of God to one another. Singing in one another's hearing and singing to the Lord with our hearts and giving thanks to God. That's how we are filled with the Spirit. And we considered that more in depth last week. But and, verse 21, and, another participle, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul's vision, the Apostle Paul's vision for the life of the church, where God's people speak the word to each other, particularly as we sing the praises of God and we receive the word in mutual submission so that there is this kind of give and take as the saints exhort and encourage each other. Paul says that in other uh, vivid language in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's the, the vision that Paul has for life in the church congregationally. As we receive the word, we encourage, we exhort. And as we do that with one another, as we're fellowshipping in these hallways and in this worship hall and before service and after service and throughout the week and we're speaking scripture to one another and we're seeking to exhort and encourage one another by rehearsing the promises of God's word to one another, as we do that, the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, is poured out upon us. And we are given more grace We're given more power to live for his glory, and we are filled with the Spirit. Now hold on to that principle. Tuck that away. Keep that in mind. Because you see Paul take that same principle of how we are filled with the Spirit, and then he applies it to all kinds of different situations. Paul has in mind more than just how we treat each other in the worship hall on the Lord's Day. He does have that in mind, but he has more than that in mind. Paul says that this kind of godly behavior, this mutual give and take, this exhorting and encouraging and sometimes even rebuking of Scripture and its promises one to another, this kind of godly behavior should overflow outside of this building and infiltrate and give shape to every single aspect of our lives. So that's why 
in chapter 5 from verse 22, where it begins speaking to wives and husbands, through chapter 6 all the way down through verse 9, Paul uses different categories, different contexts of human relationships within which this this principle that he began earlier in in chapter 5 of mutual submission should be expressed. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, submit to your parents. Slaves, submit to your masters, and so forth. This ought to be enormously valuable to us. Because you see, according to Paul, here's the main principle. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We do that, and when we do that, we are filled with the Spirit, and we are further equipped for godly living. How must we live for him? Wives, submit to your husbands, verse 22. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25. Other challenging commands, lots of challenging commands, and we'll talk about that tonight. We'll talk about that in weeks to come as we continue through Ephesians. But before Paul goes there, before Paul gets to the specificity and the nitty-gritty of those challenging commands that are, in our own strength, incredibly hard to obey, before Paul goes there, first he says, here, here's the God-supplied grace to obey. Here's the power. Here's the ability, if you like, to do what God commands. See God's grace, brothers and sisters, see God's grace to meet our need, to meet our need in keeping with what he commands. He himself gives us the power. He himself gives us the grace. He himself gives us the ability to do that which he commands. He provides the very ingredients for us to do it in the first place. This is so helpful in all kinds of situations, but especially if we find ourselves in a less-than-ideal marriage, which might be all married folks, since there are always two sinners brought together in any marriage relationship, Paul is not saying, wait to be filled with the Spirit before you try to submit to your husband, wives, or husbands, wait for some supernatural anointing from on high before you give yourself to your wife in service and leadership the way Christ loves the church. Paul is not saying that. One commentator put it like this. He's saying, Paul's saying, get busy obeying God in your homes. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, give yourself, pour yourself out for your wives. And as you obey, the Spirit of God will be given to you strengthening you. Obey in faith. Obey in faith. And the grace of God will be given to further strengthen your obedience. Close quote. What a rejoinder that is. What a rebuttal that is, especially in our day when you hear it all the time. Struggles of sin, indulgences in sin, dalliances with sin are met when you confront somebody about that. They're met with protests of, that's just how I am. There's nothing I can do about it. The Apostle Paul would say, on the contrary, God in the gospel of his Son grants you the Holy Spirit that absolutely gives you a new heart and new affections and new ability so that you can obey. You can obey as God commands. He gives more grace, and the further you strive to obey, the more grace he pours out to enable you further in living the life of godliness to which he's called you to live. Marriage is hard work. No question about it. For better or for worse, there's a reason we take those vows. But God not only commands obligations in marriage, but see, he fills us with his spirit so that we might fulfill the very obligations he's given us to obey. The Lord commands, 
but then he supplies so that we might heed exactly as he commands. I read another article recently from a secular publication, and here's what uh, was in part of the earlier paragraphs of that article, according to this one supposed relationship expert. Marriage is only useful so long as you can live your true self. As soon as you are no longer able to live your true self, the marriage is no longer useful, and you get out. In such a world, the Christian responds with, yeah, marriage can be hard. Yes, it can be. But in faith, we give ourselves over to God's commands, trusting that he will keep his word. And he's promised that as we strive... He will meet us in our need and he will give us grace to obey and he will give us power to keep pressing on. Our efforts, our abilities, they are meager in our flesh, in ourselves. But praise the Lord, he has not left us to our own devices. Speak the word to one another, Paul says in Ephesians 5. Sing the word to one another. Submit to one another. Give mutual exhortation in the word to one another. And as you do, God pours out more grace into your hearts so that you might live faithfully and you might and we all might put into practice these injunctions that Paul gives here. So that's the first thing. The power. The power. God gives power for a healthy marriage. But then secondly, look, let's think about the pattern. The pattern of a healthy marriage. Look with me at verses 22 all the way down uh, to verse 33. One commentator said that you can summarize this whole section with just two words. Submission and sacrifice, and that it's a gospel pattern. You see, submission there in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Sacrifice, you see that in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's think first about submission. Now, there's a loaded word, often grossly, grossly misunderstood. On the one hand, even hearing the word submission, it offends all the sensibilities of our modern culture. And we who actually believe God's word and love God's word and trust God's word soon find ourselves the object of scorn from our enlightened culture despisers. Christians expect their wives to submit? What kind of knuckle-dragging backward cult are you part of? On the other hand, there are those in rather conservative Christian circles who have taken this verse and they've used it as license for extreme versions of domineering rule, if not outright abuse. In some cases, by their unbridled sinful machismo, they have taken women who are absolutely godly and they've turned the biblical idea of submission into a stench in these ladies' nostrils. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the authorized emissary for King Jesus say? that is Paul, that submission should look like. Now, if you notice at verse 22, in some of your Bibles, depending on what English translation you're losing, you'll see that the words submit to or be subject to is written in italics, which means that the translators had to supply the verb submit in order to smooth it out as they brought it over into English. It's not there in the original. However, please don't panic. That shouldn't bother us. You grammarians will know that what Paul is doing is what's called an implicit verb carryover, or what's sometimes called an elided verb. What's he talking about? What does that mean? The verb he just used, what that means is the verb that he just used last sentence 
carries over here and gets used the same way. Woodenly, woodenly translated, that verse says, starting at verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. And then at verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives to their husbands in everything. What Paul is getting at is, even even his verbiage here is theological, what Paul is getting at is, as wives submit, their model of what that looks like is how the church submits to King Jesus. The submission that he speaks of here is derivative and imitative and is a profoundly theological thing. Now, as we're thinking about that verb submission, and we're thinking about what Paul is enjoining here for wives... Is it a totalitarian authority that she must bow to every whim or impulse that her husband may have? Well, no. If her husband is leading her to sin, she must not follow that lead. She must, as Peter said, obey God rather than man. No, she must do it as to the Lord. That's what verse 22 says. As part of her love and devotion to King Jesus. That's the fundamental basis for her obedience to this command. That's the fundamental basis. Ladies, wives, submitting to your husband merely to tread lightly on his ego is not the fundamental basis for obedience. The primary basis for doing so is for the sake of Christ Jesus, your Savior and King. And notice, notice, as several commentators have observed, it is not a quid pro quo here. Right? You submit if he first gives himself up for you. Submission on the condition of his good behavior. That may be why the apostle speaks to the wives first as he gives this exhortation here. No, submit to your husband, he says, as unto the Lord. Even if your husband is far from the paragon of the loving leader that he ought to be. Remember what the apostle Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 16? He says there, who knows? Who knows if your godly obedience might be the very means God uses to convert your husband to Christ. Wives, obey my command, not ultimately for him, but for Jesus' sake, Paul says. Now notice verses 23 and 24. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is itself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The marriage relationship is designed to be a picture of the gospel itself. Skip down to verse 32. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. A marriage ought to picture. It ought to display the way Jesus cares for his bride, his people, and the way that his people follow their Savior. Which means that Jesus loves and leads and dies for the church. And the church delights and trusts in and obeys and follows him. How should the church, how should the church submit to Christ's lordship? And that will provide the answer. How should the church submit to Christ? That will provide the answer for how the wife should submit to her husband, according to the Apostle Paul. So that's the first big imagery he provides regarding the wives, submission. But also the second big imagery, sacrifice. Here's the other side of the coin in the pattern of a healthy marriage. Verses 25 through 33. 
The command for wifely submission is a controversial notion, particularly in this day and age, uh, even within the church, to say nothing of outside the church. But look how Paul enjoins the husbands here, and it is instructive for all of us. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If a marriage is a picture of the relation to Christ and the church, we would do well. We would do well to remember how often we are fickle to our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. How often we wander in sin. How often we are cold, aloof in our devotion. It's not always easy. (laughs) There's an understatement. It's not always easy for a wife to submit to her husband. How often the church... How often we want to buck authority and disregard our duty to our king. But if I may borrow the language of the Puritans here, we must wed our duty also with delight. In light of the insurmountable and indescribably costly sacrifice of Christ, how can we not, how can we not but bend the knee to our Savior? Love so amazing, so divine, demands our soul. Our life, our all. Yes, obedience is hard. Obedience is hard, but how can we not? It is our duty. We must do it. We're commanded to do it. But in the face of the loveliness of Christ and all of his splendor and all of his beauty and all of his life-giving work and all of his love towards his people and the covenant of grace, in light of all of it, how does that burden not become light in view of Calvary? to bend the knee to King Jesus and bow the head in submission to him. How does that burden not become light? Sacrifice. Put another way, we must die to self. We must die to self. In the face of the loveliness of Christ and all of his splendor, how can it not also be our delight? And that sacrificial mentality, that sacrificial mentality of discipleship, that is the pattern of all Christians everywhere that pattern must also play out in our marriages. And so, husbands, we make our wives' submission lighter. We make it easier when we, like our Savior, give ourselves up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives in the template, in the pattern, in the the paradigm of Calvary. Pour yourselves out for her. But some might object. Verse 24 says, wives submit in everything to their husbands. Yes, just like we do to the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? Ah, how quickly we love to fixate on verse 24 while giving only passing assent to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Yes, Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ had every and has every right to demand unquestioning subservience. Christ himself said in Gethsemane in Matthew 26 that there he could have summoned more than 72,000 angels who could have vaporized his enemies in an instant. Christ had every right. But that is not how Christ loved his bride. One sermon I listened to on this passage a number of years ago pointed out John 13. We've been in John 13 recently, so this is very apropos and timely. You remember it? Jesus rose from supper, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example so that you should do just as I have done. Their submission at the breath of his mouth is and ever has been his divine and crown right. But how did he begin? That's the pattern for the Christian life. That's the pattern for the Christian life. The Lord Jesus had every right to say, get down on the knee and heed my command right now. He began by washing his disciples' feet in the lowliest act of subservience. That's the pattern for the Christian life. Let it begin with me. And in Ephesians 5, verse 25 and following, Paul is pressing that upon their husbands toward their, upon husbands toward their wives. Here's a call to us men. It must begin with us. It must begin with us. Our first stop must not be with the quality of our wife's submission, the degree to which we are pleased with it, but rather with the quality of our sacrifice for her. That's the pattern. That is how Christ loved his church. So the power, the gospel power of a healthy marriage, the gospel pattern of a healthy marriage, and then thirdly and finally, the gospel practice of a healthy marriage. Verse 27 again. This monumental, this overwhelming, this, this love of Christ that bowls us over the sacrificial love of Christ, it was done toward an end. What end? Verse 27. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus died to make his church splendid and radiant and glorious and holy. He died. He died. Husbands, there's our primary task. To seek, to labor toward, to strive for the holiness of our wives. Brothers, pray with her and for her. Take the lead in family worship and family devotions. Set the spiritual tone in your household, whether you have children or not. Cultivate an atmosphere in your home of love and devotion to the Lord Jesus. And if you have children and and, and the kiddos are getting squirmy in worship, and I see so many of you men doing this, well done. Take the children outside to help settle them while your wife is able to sit and hear the word. Brothers, this is our great task, and this is how we will serve our wives well. As many others have said before, we want our wives to love Christ more than she loves us. And we want her to be beautiful in the most everlastingly significant way. The the beauty of which Paul speaks here, beautified with holiness, cleansed, sanctified, washed in the pure water of the word. And look at verses 28 to 31 as we close. There's two metaphors that Paul has been using here. Uh, Perhaps the two most popular metaphors as we understand the church. They both start with the letter B. The church is Christ's bride, but also Christ's body. And thus far, Paul has been using the metaphor of Christ's care for his bride. Well, now here at the end of this passage, the end of this section, he changes the metaphor to Christ's care for his body, the church. Christ cares for his bride, his church, and Christ cares for his body, his church. So likewise, husbands, Paul says, you should care for your earthly bride as Jesus cares for his. And as he cares for his body, you should also care for yours because your wife is, in a mystical way, 
part of your very own body. Paul quotes Genesis 2, verse 24. The two become one flesh. Husbands and wives are one. And so Paul, as you see here, he's appealing to absurdity in order to make a point. No one hated his own body. You don't injure it deliberately. You don't starve it and make it miserable. No. A husband is to love his wife as he loves his own body, the way Christ loves his body, the church. As Christ is one with the church, so the husband is one with his wife. And so the only natural thing to do is to love his body and thus love her, to nurture and beautify and cherish and protect her. Brothers, if you're a young man... If you're in high school, if you're college age, and you're hoping to be married someday, take note of this passage, because this is the kind of man that Christ is calling you to be. And if you're not striving after this pattern, I urge you, start today. The patterns that you cultivate today, this week, will absolutely be the patterns that follow you into your marriage. Cultivate Christlikeness, service, and a sacrificial mindset now. There are many voices in the church decrying the crisis of masculinity in our day and the rampant evils of a worldly egalitarianism, or worse. And you know, they're probably right. They're probably right. We probably do have a rampant issue with egalitarianism run amok and a crisis of masculinity. But the answer of men is not to cultivate a purely culturally bound, red-blooded, hedonistic machismo and say, this is manliness, something which tends to resemble flannel-wearing lumberjacks more than anything else. No, the kind of masculinity that we need, the manhood with which we must love and lead our wives or our future wives, is here before us. It's Christ-likeness. And ladies, young women, if God is calling you to marriage, you look for a man like this, as Paul spells it out here in Scripture. Yes, you want intellectual and emotional compatibility. Yes, you want shared interests and goals. His ability to provide for a family. Is he handsome? Those are all factors. I'm not saying they're illegitimate. But primarily and fundamentally, is he a Christ-like man? Is he Christ-like? How many marriages have endured so much heartache because a mate was chosen, scrutinizing every quality except this most basic one? Is he a Christ-like man who wants you to love Jesus more than you love him and will give himself over so that you may be a greater worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the gospel picture of marriage. What a countercultural thing this is, both to a world that has dishonored and discarded marriage, but also to the severe reactionaries that would dishonor it and turn it into a thing of oppression. What a glorious thing, what a glorious thing when God, by his holy word and by his Holy Spirit, molds us so that our most fundamental and intimate of human relationships might serve to display to the world something of the gospel. That the way husbands and wives love each other might testify to the world of the love and grace of Christ to his people. May it be so among us and may God work this grace into each and every one of our marriages. Would you pray with me, friends? Father, thank you. Thank you for the marriages of our congregation, and we praise you for your grace to them. Forgive us when the world's pattern has shaped us rather than the gospel pattern. Strengthen our marriages, present marriages and future marriages, that they might bring you glory. May those desiring marriages seek godly spouses be fitting of our passage tonight. And we ask that you would do this for Christ's glory in our homes, in our congregation, 
and in the world. We ask it all for Jesus' sake. Amen.